Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Averill. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Averill. Here's the thing you can be a strong, independent, accomplished woman in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond, and still feel pressure from your family. Pressure to conform to their expectations and values. Pressure to be at a certain stage of your life. Pressure to conduct your life and make choices consistent with your family's belief system. It's really a lifelong process. Figuring out who you are in the context of your family. Family systems researchers call this process individuation from family of origin, which is all about renegotiating your relationship with your parents, figuring out an adult level of closeness and separateness to them. It's a fascinating topic, at least I think so, because it was the topic for my dissertation. But all of us go through this individuation process, and for some, it's pretty fluid. For others, the process contains a great deal of angst. In some cases, as we try to create space and independence, our parents can feel abandoned. They may say something like, you don't need me anymore, or I miss how close we used to be. And yes, healthy adult family functioning absolutely entails closeness, but it absolutely does not entail enmeshment. And this is something with which many families struggle. Then again, sometimes we overdo it. We feel so pulled to separate, and we end up going so far away from our roots that we no longer recognize ourselves. Individuation is a complex and dicey experience, and one that, frankly, we continue to navigate throughout adulthood. Every family's journey is unique, but we all go through it. And a family's culture also plays a huge role in the individuation process, especially when the family has recently immigrated to the U.S. Certain hot topics like dating, marriage, and divorce are viewed very differently in other cultures when compared to mainstream American culture. So to delve deeper into this topic, I've invited life coach Versha Mathur to the program. Versha is a life coach who uses her background in law, business, and nonprofit leadership to enhance the positive accountability experience for individual life coaching and professional development. She coaches those weighed down by judgment and shame to uproot social stigmas and taboos so that they can make decisions that best serve their dreams. As a South Asian born in the United States, Versha observed that in her culture, topics such as divorce, love, and remarriage were ridden with shame. Versha uses her personal story to help remove the stigma of these topics in all communities. Before coaching, Versha practiced law and mediation for five years and later owned and operated a healthcare management company for six years. These professional transitions along with her personal ones, have given her a perspective that differs from most lawyers, business owners, and coaches. When she's not coaching, Versha is traveling. She's visited five continents, 27 countries, 
and 32 U.S. states. She continues discovering what the people and the places of the world have to offer. Varsha, welcome to Love and Life. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited to have you on the program. You bring a very unique perspective. You are another one of my Instagram friends that I have met in this social media realm. And I really love what you're about, your posts, and what you're bringing to this space because there are so many unique perspectives and experiences and My followers and listeners struggle. I think they're very powerful, independent, and optimistic people. But I say struggle because the struggle is real in the dating world. I always say it's a jungle, and I don't mean to be negative about that, but I just want people to know that I've been there, I've felt that, and I'm sure you have too. And mm-hmm. the vicissitudes of just the just all the emotions and with the technology. And it's just, there's a lot to grapple with. And so I think it's really wonderful when someone like you can say, yes, there's all that. And also, I happen to know that there's this other element that's very powerful in people's experiences based on their subculture and if they are coming from perhaps um, immigrant communities or if they are newer to America and then there's these subcultural realities. So there's mm-hmm. a lot at work and I don't have the vernacular to speak about it, but you do. So please share with the listeners a little bit about your own background and how you came into this realm yourself. Thank you. Yes. So as a dating and relationship life coach, I started working with my own story and that surfaced uh, around social stigmas in relation to my own divorce and having to confront that in a community of South Asian family members and friends where topics like marriage and divorce and separation and dating again just weren't topics that were frequently discussed and they were a bit taboo. And so as I began my journey, I noticed uh, a lot of people coming out of the woodwork and asking me how I got out of the slump, why I was so vocal about my story, and that led to my coaching practice. Uh, The social stigmas that I confronted are not... uh, a singular event. They are often experienced, especially in South Asian culture and from in, in many people's lives where traditional families from immigrant families to, you know, church going families to tight knit communities around the country here in the States or elsewhere, you know, you're faced with uh, judgment and shame when things are outside of what everyone around you is calling the norm. And so that was my experience. And that is uh, a place that some of my clients come from and a place that there is absolutely um, ways to come out of and shine and be yourself and live a life of um, happiness as you define it. Yeah, I think that there are unique experiences, like you're saying, when you come to a country and it's a more recent immigration then there can be, I I would imagine, because it's new, because it's different, you may even bond closer and and band together as you're trying to navigate your way through a new culture. And then by by virtue of that bonding, you may be then expected to maybe toe the line. This is how we do things. 
and you are part of our culture, you're part of our community, so you're going to do the same. So when you do something that's out of step with the mores or the norms, I would imagine it would be even more of a shaming experience that you might encounter or more kind of finger pointing and, and discipline, so to speak. So can you speak to that? And, and you use the term third culture, which I think would be helpful for folks who aren't familiar with that term to understand some of those realities. Sure. Yeah. So um, you absolutely hit it on the nail. You know, you're doing these things that are outside of the norm and people will point the finger. And that was my experience. Now, um, when I speak about third culture, what I mean by that, uh, what people typically mean, there is some research around this. There are some definitions about third culture, which typically relate to people who were are living and have like a passport from one country, but their parents come from another country, and yet they still may be living in a third country, like uh, the children of diplomats or missionaries who um, kind of have these multiculturalisms all around them. Uh, Me personally, another way to describe this third culture is when you've created a culture of your own coming from both the culture of your immigrant parents and the culture of the community around you, which in my case is the United States, and then having to figure out how to merge those things along the way. And that culture now is pretty deep. There have been people coming and migrating from India since uh, going back actually from the 1800s. My own grandparents came in the late 1950s. And so my family now has four generations of Uh, family members living in the States and creating their own culture. Now, for every generation that my family creates, there's also another immigrant family coming for the first time to the United States and starting their life and having children here who are going to be part of this culture as well. Um, And so what I find to be incredibly important, especially in dealing with your own personal life of dating and relationships or going through a divorce is Uh, considering not just your uh, culture of where you're living, but also the culture of your, where you're from, and then deciding what you're going to make of that for yourself. And um, that's kind of what makes dating people with this type of background so interesting is that you don't know where along that spectrum they lie. And getting to know them from that perspective can be um, really empowering because it helps you understand who they really are um, as far as like, you know, hey, when did your parents come to the States? Because that's going to affect how traditional you might be or how non-traditional you might be. Well, yeah. And I've thought about this before because I went to a Christian college. So I did have some friends who were kids of missionaries. And that's when I first came across that term, third culture. I remember thinking about what it would be like because you really are not really feeling probably the same as probably anyone because so one of my roommates actually she grew up in Africa but her parents were from Wheaton Illinois so she was technically an american like you said american passport but mm-hmm. her all her formative years were in Africa and and then mm-hmm. she comes back to college so she looks like us she has parents who look like us, but her experience was not the typical K to 12 in an American school at all. So he, so I would imagine that there would just be some feelings of alienation at times. And like you said, then trying to connect with someone, even with dating or marriage, some of this lack of shared experience 
might show up. Right, right. And you're absolutely right. The loneliness uh, that is felt, especially like for me as a divorced South Asian person, uh, it's a it's a very different experience than a typical you know person who stays married. You know, for from yeah. for lack of a better word, typical normal. You know, these things are always sort of um, thrown at you, and yeah, it's very lonely, and it is so important to connect with people and find people who are like you, experiencing mm-hmm. things that are similar. And unfortunately, um, a lot of my friends and their parents, you know, who had been through divorces, had not been through divorces in traditional families. So, it, right. you know, it was really hard to find that. And so I do encourage people to find that um, sameness among their mentors and peers and uh, best, you know, trusted people, uh, which is why I created my programs and my brand in the first place was to make sure people didn't feel alone. Um, and again, recognizing that as part of the place where someone you're dating or in a relationship with is coming from can be really, really effective as a way to connect with them and uh, deepen the relationship with them. I think it's so powerful. And here's again, we will speak often, and I share on my my podcast a lot, about social media. And there are some very legitimate concerns with the rampant use and how it is related to our mental and emotional health. However, one of the wonderful things about social media, it is this bridge that crosses miles so that you can find this community of people who you are uniquely positioned to help in your case And you can then step out to these other third culture communities or these other people who are experiencing this alienation. And you can say, hello, I'm here and I get it. And it doesn't matter that you're thousands of miles away. Uh, What I have to share and and offer you and the support I have for you is available right on your phone. So I'm sure Mm -hmm. that's been really powerful for you. Yes. I, I bring this up often because I just recently moved about six months ago and people are like, well, how are you establishing your business in a new city? And I, I tell them a lot of clients didn't even know I was moving because they don't yeah. need to. You know, We're connected online and that is actually a really powerful place. And I find it even more empowering to speak to clients who are in the safety and comfort of their own home speaking about topics that are sensitive and emotional Mm -hmm. and being able to do that from your own space over the internet is awesome. Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. There's that, because you're talking about very, like you said, sensitive topics and topics that they're already feeling out of sorts Mm -hmm. and uncomfortable. So at least their surroundings can be feeling safe. We would hope that they're in a safe place in their home. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram at Dr. Karen, that's D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. On Twitter, I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson. Live tweet with me when I watch my favorite shows, Will and Grace, my brand new fave, God Friended Me, and of course, all shows Bachelor Nation. Join me on Facebook where I'm stepping up my Facebook Live game. I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. So, Varsha, do you mind sharing a little bit of your own personal journey? You mentioned a divorce, and you mentioned that that was perhaps even more of a challenge. I mean, divorce is always just horribly – it's devastating. There's just no other way to put it. It Mm -hmm. can absolutely – of course, we can frame it as also 
an opportunity to step into a more authentic and more empowered life. But be that as it may, that valley of divorce is absolutely horrific. And yet you had some additional variables at work as we've been speaking to. But do you mind sharing a little bit of your own personal journey? I always feel like it's it helps the listeners to get to see your heart and understand you a little bit more, if you don't mind sharing. Sure. Yeah. I was uh, in a uh, marriage where there was, you know, just a lot of emotional abuse around um, finances, around, uh, you know, just the safety and security of the integrity of your home. You know, there's not really any one particular way to explain that, but those of you who may be listening will understand what that means uh, if you're going through something similar. And the idea behind the divorce, the logistics of the divorce and the process of like building my life up again was secondary to what are my parents going to think? What are their friends going to think? What is my grandfather going to think? You know, all of the family and the society around it, um, that weighed on me longer and harder than anything else when I finally decided to leave my ex-husband. And that is, in hindsight, the scariest part of everything I experienced because uh, you know, it, you know, when you look back, it's like, well, that wasn't technically the hardest thing because how much did it really affect me? Right. Because the finances affected me for a long time and the, sure. um, you know, all of these other logistical things, having to deal with lawyers and mediations and then court dates and, um, you know, separating your physical things, you know, that stuff is, is really grueling. Um, and the fact that this emotional challenge and the cultural stigma, shame, judgment, was what weighed on me the most when I had to make the most important decision of my life. Uh, that empowers me today to make sure yeah. others don't feel that. Um, so the divorce um, happened. I subsequently, you know, ran a business on my own, figured out how to sell a home by myself, um, had a ton of help from family, could not have done it without, you know, parents saying, yes, of course you're going to live with us um, during this process. And, um, helping me in so many other ways with just the logistics of things. Um, And then I was on the dating scene again in uh, a community where, you know, it was important for me to meet somebody who had similar religious beliefs as I did and would understand the type of family I came from, perhaps even the language that like my, my family speaks in addition to English. And so all of these factors made me seek out a South Asian partner again when I was in the dating scene, uh, once I was even ready to date again. And then I had this cloud around me where a lot of people were not ready to date somebody who had the label of divorced on their um, foreheads, if you will, the scarlet Mm -hmm. letter, um, if you will. (laughs) And then, um, you know, I didn't have children. Uh, Some of my clients do also deal with like having children and men who don't have children and uh, dating them in the South Asian community. Again, there's just so much judgment there. And um, overcoming that process was a lot about my own self-worth and figuring out who I wanted to be and the type of person that I was going to be with um, kind of stemmed from you know, knowing that if they weren't able to accept me 100%, then they weren't the right person. And, it, you know, the other thing I like to also bring up uh, in South Asian communities is 
uh, when, before I got divorced and even after I was divorced, I was so worried about what a divorce in my immediate family would look like to my single siblings and their potential matches mm. and how our family and the families of their boyfriends or fiancés or whatever would perceive our family if there was a divorce in our family. And that's something that's very prevalent uh, and unfortunately used as a way to shame people. You would be responsible potentially for them not being able to find a, an appropriate partner because of what you went through and is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah believe yeah, it or wow. not. I mean, I think there, yeah, I think a lot of people um, worry about like, well, what if they meet a guy whose family is more traditional and they don't want their son marrying into a family where there is a divorce? Uh, so for like, for example, for my younger sisters who weren't sure, married yet. Sure. And so, um, you know, it sounds silly now in hindsight because my sister's uh, at that time when I when I brought this up to them, said to me, you know, then obviously that wouldn't be the right person for us and the right family right. for us to marry in. But at the time, these these are the things that go through your head, you know, and here you are making a, a decision to potentially stay in a very unhealthy relationship for the sake of some future possibility that right. don't, there's right. going to be judgment. It's a lot to carry. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. It's a, it's a lot for you to own and take responsibility for. But again, if that's the context that in which you were raised, where that was expected of you, and I, my dissertation was on individuation from family of origin and identity development. So oh. what? I, yeah. So I looked at family dynamics and uh, terms that we use, and you may be familiar with this literature as well. But enmeshment versus disengaged families, and these dynamics and these expectations. And again, the norms that families establish and their rules that are never really communicated, they're not posted on the refrigerator mm-hmm. <laughs> about how close we're going to be or how much independence we allow family members before we start saying, oh, that's too independent. Now right. you're betraying the family. Now mm-hmm. you're going rogue. And these are all very, like I said, because they're not overt, they're covert, they're often very hard to identify. Now, I was looking at certain, I mean, I was definitely getting some demographic information, but I wasn't delving into a particular culture or community because I did hear a lot as I was doing this research and and as as I was gathering my data, I would hear a lot certain, because I was at at a big public university and some students, we had a huge array of students from very different backgrounds. And some would say, well, in my culture, there's no way. You say that's enmeshed, that's normal for my culture. The, mm-hmm. the expectations, I would, of course, do whatever my parents say, even if I'm 35 years old. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to still live in their home until I'm married. I would never not live in their home. That would be, it just isn't done. So right. I think it's hard sometimes for maybe, again, so folks who have been in the more, again, I don't know how to say this, right, but you know, the, the more typical culture, American culture, understanding mm-hmm. of what's appropriate or typical and conventional, it's probably hard for them to imagine, well, so if I got divorced, my sister could maybe not marry the guy of her dreams because of what I did. I mean, that's right. probably hard for some to wrap their mind around. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, moving, moving, finding the right people to um, ask them to take a harder look at where you come from or to find people who are going to understand where you come from um, and yet be open-minded enough to see where you need to go to be happy for yourself as an individual is so important. And this is where 
um, in hindsight, I learned that my family was going to be a lot more accepting of my decisions and that the covert, uh, you know, sort of rules that, you know, are not written out there that I was putting on myself were not necessarily uh, true. And they weren't necessarily things that I had to abide by once I, uh, and I only realized that once I started the communication with the people who were important to me. And that's so interesting that you had picked up and made some assumptions then Mm -hmm. that there would be actually more shame involved and that there would be more of a perception from your family members that you had truly screwed up not only your life, but everyone else's life in the family. And then when you started to, I'm sure that was a horrible struggle. I mean, I'm sure it was very, very painful. And then as you started to come to the realization, be that as it may, I must leave this marriage and I will have to deal with the family fallout as it comes. And then to find out a pleasant surprise that wow, I maybe was making more of it than what really was going to happen because they do continue to love me and they do support me and they do understand that there's no reason to live in something that's just that hideous. But I'm sure that there was a lot of struggle there in your as you were deliberating. Yes. Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> um, so um, I, I guess part of it is taking everybody's, uh, or assuming everybody's reactions, number one, right. um, and then having to explain yourself every single time because yeah. it's not just your parents. It's like your aunts and your extended family aunts and your grandparents and your extended family, great aunts and uncles. And so it's, it's a lot of rehashing your situation because you respect them enough to want to be including them in the process. Um, and, you know, whether or not that was necessary, whether or not that was part of what I thought I was supposed to do, um, you know, that, you know, you, I can analyze now whether or not I right. needed to do all of that. But that at the time, that's what I felt like I needed to do. Right. And, right. Um, yeah. So that it was, it was a struggle, but, um, you know, the, the communication that I, that I talk about with all of this is, not to uh, dump things on your family all at once, um, but that to open those lines of communication slowly and uh, to, to allow your the people that you're closest to, who you may be assuming are making judgments and uh, allowing them to grow with you by how mm-hmm. you open up the lines of communication with mm-hmm. them along the way. And I'm wondering if you've had the experience, and what's resonating here for me is I called off a wedding. I was 34, and we dated four years. We were engaged one of those years, and then two months before the wedding, all of the denial that I had been in for the entire relationship finally just reared its, I won't say ugly head, because it was finally truth that I was willing to acknowledge and finally own that this relationship was not going to happen and that this was a great guy, but not my guy. Now, what happened that I'm resonating with with you is that afterwards, when you call off a wedding, it's kind of dramatic, you know, the runaway bride thing. And I had a lot of people, of course, they had questions. How were you in it for four years before you finally realized he wasn't for you? And so when you talk about explaining the story over and over, I can absolutely identify with that. And one of the things I had to come to which was just part of my growth and development in this, is that sometimes I had to realize that as much as my desire, my heart of hearts was that everyone that I would tell, and certainly everyone in my family that I cared about, everyone that I would tell 
would not only fully understand my rationale for leaving the marriage, I mean, leaving the engagement, but would also fully support my rationale. Mm -hmm. I wanted everyone's understanding, support, and approval. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And what I had to realize was that that was a bit irrational on my part, that everyone would fully get it and fully endorse it and give me a high five. Mm-hmm. And and by me insisting that if they didn't fully understand and endorse and approve, that then I was going to be upset, I was giving them too much power. Mm-hmm. And so I had to do an Albert Ellis REBT thing, you know, with the rational emotive behavior therapy. I had to say to myself, Karen, yes, in an ideal world, when you make a big life choice like this and you call off an engagement and you're 34 and everyone's ready for you to get married and have babies and you're ready to get married and have babies, but it's not going to be with this guy. When you do this, you have to understand that it's irrational to believe and to insist that everyone will be tapping their foot to your music and everyone will be high-fiving you and endorsing your decision. Now, if that happens with some individuals, that is wonderful. That is nice. But if I will be devastated, if everyone in my community does not support me in this, then I'm giving I'm being A, irrational, and I don't want to be irrational, and B, I'm giving everyone too much power over me and my life. So I'm wondering, did you ever have instances where you had to kind of cognitively work through that? Absolutely. I mean, there were times, I think the biggest turning point for me really did happen when I went from, how am I going to convince them to, okay, what am I going to do if they never approve this? What am I going to do if they never understand? And I still to this day have people in my life who, despite now being remarried into a very happy and healthy relationship, there are people in my life who will never understand why I got a divorce. And that's um, unfortunately on them because (laughs) I've moved on. But, um, you know, there, there was definitely a moment. And and I wish I could remember the exact moment when this changed for me. And maybe there wasn't one, maybe it was a a slow development of my own self-worth and my confidence in my decisions. Um, But it really Mm -hmm. had to be around, okay, how am I going to handle myself um, around these people who may never accept me um, and my thinking, and maybe even just pretend that they do. And there's always that like sort of friction and like weird awkwardness in the background. Um, And dealing with that made me much stronger. I think it's such an empowering moment. And whether it's a slow evolution or I do actually remember the moment I was outside my brother's house and I was trying to explain, and it wasn't to my brother. My mom was actually super supportive, but she'd still, she'd come back as she was processing it because this man had been part of her life for four years and she envisioned him being her son-in-law and having, these would be the father of her grandchildren. And and Mm -hmm. so she'd say, no, well, tell me again, now what exactly? And and finally, I was like, and it wasn't a big blowout or anything. We're just not like that. We're not real volatile. Mm-hmm. I just said, Mom, you know, I, I, I can't, I've explained it to you as best as I can that it didn't feel right in my gut and that I just didn't think that it, I could do it, but I would always be looking at other people and thinking they had that true love, and I didn't. And I said, Mom, if I keep explaining to you why, why it, it, it wasn't a fit for me, then I feel like I'm tearing him down. And I already mm-hmm. left him. <laughs> and I, I feel bad enough that I did that, that he's heartbroken. And I don't want to keep saying things about him that are reasons I, I couldn't be fully madly in love with him 
to give you an explanation. I understand you want an explanation. It was very cerebral. But I, I just mm-hmm. said, I can't, because I keep, then I feel like I'm a horrible, not only did I break his heart, but now I keep ripping on him and saying bad things about him. I don't want to do that. Yeah. So it was that moment. And then I, I meant, it's funny because, you know, I'm a professor of psychology and I, and, and I have a master's in clinical psych. So I know about counseling and everything. And so I finally go, Karen, you need to use some of your counseling interventions on yourself right now. Sure. And it was yeah. just an epiphany. And I thought, I need to let go that everyone's going to fully get it. They, mm-hmm. that's, but that's okay. So I, I love what you said when you realize it's not how to persuade them anymore. It's now how do I, how will I choose to manage that tension that might be there? Or, and again, and, and, and I love using the, the power term because I know that the women that I'm sure you work with and the women that I interact with on social media and that listen to the podcast we're not trying, we're not like running around flexing all day to show how strong we are, but we certainly don't want to dismiss all the work that's been done for women and then to just recoil and not own our power. And we own our power by going, you know what? People can think whatever they want about me. And I love this, Varsh, and I'm sure you've had this same energy with your experience. What other people think of me, A, I can't control, and B, it's none of my business. So, okay. Yes, that is profound, brilliantly said. Um, One thing that I will say, which kind of ties into your conversation with your mother that you just spoke of, when I decided to separate and get a divorce, in the very beginning, I was doing the convincing stuff, right? And I think the, the, the convincing that like, well, he was like this and we fought about these things and I, I didn't feel comfortable in his presence and, you know, always making it about my ex. And Mm -hmm. when I finally understood that this process was about regaining my own power, regaining my own gifts and talents and uh, taking control of my own life again, it was nothing about him anymore. And my process and my, my experience then became about me. And I think when the people around me who were important to me and who were potentially making these judgments saw that this is now about Versha and not the uh, marriage, then they were able to get on board a little bit more easily because that person was out of the picture for me and therefore could be out of the picture for them. I like that. I think that's also very empowering to look at it. I, I, I need to stop making this about the other person. It's about me. And I'm still here in this family and I still want a relationship with you. And I hope that we can just not make this the thing that keeps us having tension for the next 50 years of our lives. Right, right. Yeah. Because, you know, there comes a time when, uh, there came a time when I was over my divorce and separation, even before uh, my siblings, for example, where wow. I realized that I needed to check in with them and see where they were with it because they too lost somebody that was a family member. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was able to finally see it as that and bring it to them it, from that perspective, they were like, oh yeah, yeah, you, you're the person that stayed with us. You're the person we want in our lives. And, um, how are you doing? You know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. It, it was, it was, it's really, really shifted the, the process for all of us. And the thing that I love about what you're doing is because, and again, because my dissertation is on family dynamics, families are both the most wonderful, most intimate, most precious relationships. And they're also relationships that are very, like I said earlier, they're very nebulous. They're very hard for us to see because it's hard to see a system when you're part of the system. 
So when I'm thinking about, like, so for example, my mother, as I was talking about, part of my mother, she loved my ex, of course. She had envisioned this life we were going to have. And, but part of her concern was I'm 34 and she had some fear, like most mothers do. I'm living in Chicago. I'm single. I'm living alone. She was anticipating that I would have this man to protect me and take care of me in this big bad city. And she was envisioning that if Karen breaks up with him, then she'll be single for more and more years. And will she ever find anyone? So oftentimes our family members' reactions and responses are, of course, coming from a place of love, but also sometimes a place of fear or maybe their own agenda for how mm-hmm. our life should go. And it, it sounds selfish. I don't mean that they're all selfish. It's hard. It's impossible not to have an idea for your children, for example, of how you think their life would be best played out. And it doesn't mm-hmm. mean they're horrible people, but it does mean that oftentimes their responses are about them and not mm-hmm. really about us. And so I think for, again, if we can kind of step above it and, and, and kind of look down on the family and start trying to be more objective about our own family, that can be helpful. So I'm thinking that your clients probably can get some of that objectivity from you, that they really, if they go seeking that within their family, it's probably going to be very hard to come by. Absolutely. And um, as of recently, some parents uh, have have actually contacted me for coaching. Oh, wow. Because these automatic ways that we are and these automatic ways that we act when we discover fear in this unknown world that we've never faced before, um, we don't know what else to do but to react the ways we know how to react, you know, like put up the defenses, ask the questions, really judge and and put shame on the people that are doing things that, you know, we don't understand. And so, um, you know, instead allowing coaching to um, provide for you another place to come from, another perspective, another version of yourself, perhaps a uh, version of yourself where uh, you can be proud of how you react to some of these things. Um, that can be really empowering. And so I was actually wow. very, uh, I don't even know what's, what word to use. I was proud of and kind of very, uh, I, I had a lot of respect for these parents who said, look, we don't understand our kids. Um, how do we go about understanding them? We didn't experience the same lifestyle they did. Right. We brought them to this country, exposed them to the dating world, and now they've picked the wrong husband, want to <laughs> date somebody outside of the culture. Um, yeah. you know, what do we do? And I, I, I really commend people for wanting to take a deeper look at how to improve their perspectives and perceptions. Well, I think that must be really encouraging to have parents because, again, we think of the parents, they're going to be sticking with, the again, the norms that they came from, from the culture from which they come. And that, and I've always thought about this just because America, being America, that we do have so many people coming from everywhere. And I've always thought of what that might be like. And again, probably because I studied family systems so extensively, mm-hmm. but what it must be like to come to a land for all the reasons you came for opportunity and for the parts of the culture that you love, but then you let you bring your own culture that you absolutely adore as well. And yet by virtue of the fact that you're raising kids here, they're not going to hundred percent adhere to the, the old ways because they're not a hundred percent back to the third culture experience. I mean, mm-hmm. and that must be, I would imagine for parents and not that, and some are coming to you, that's great, but maybe they have some other parent support group for this, but there would be yeah. some grief involved that 
they're grieving that my kid is not exactly like me the way I thought they might be because I've brought them to this new place and with its different ways. Yeah, they're not going to understand religion and language the way you did, perhaps, or Um, yeah, some simple like little nuances, those unspoken things that, you know, I know my dad had a totally different relationship with his own father than I have with him Mm -hmm. or that he has with his own son. Um, And so, you know, those kinds of things are now lost forever. Yeah, And it takes a lot of bravery to accept that this was the life that you chose and uh, it is a new culture and that's okay. Yeah, Uh, My parents, for one, along the way, uh, really made some great strides to um, adapt and adjust to this new culture that was now created by their kids. And uh, there were definitely growing pains. Like I remember boys wanting to call my house and take me to prom. And it was awkward because Indian people don't date. I mean, that's Mm. the way I never saw it. I mean, Indian people aren't um, affectionate in front of one another in romantic relationships, in front of others, you know, um, in romantic relationships. And so it's really challenging. It was really challenging for me and a lot of my clients who, you know, grow up with these traditional families who say, okay, study and work hard and, you know, build a life for yourself in this new country. Um, And then they are either forced into trying out arranged marriages, which their parents have have done, were used to, or are being told all of a sudden, okay, who's your boyfriend? Who do you want to marry now? And along the way, they were never like encouraged or introduced to dating, never showed how to do it, right. never allowed to even talk about it. And now all of a sudden they're being asked like, oh, well, you're an American kid. So where's your, where's your fiance? Like, let's go, let's get you married. It's, <laughs> you're at that age now, you know? So these are, these are really new challenges for, for this third culture of kids. Yeah. It, yeah. That's, that would be very, yeah. So you're supposed to, it sounds like you're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place in, in some ways. You're supposed to adhere to some degree to the new ways and just, then adhere, of course, to the, the the traditional ways. And I'm sure that got difficult. If you drink black coffee or hot tea, I know you've burned your tongue hundreds of times. Or you've had to wait 20 minutes for your coffee to cool down, which by that time, your donut or muffin is long gone and you've missed the joy of pairing that sweet breakfast item with your bitter black coffee. If it sounds like I'm speaking from personal experience, I am. But I've got good news for us. Drink Perfection takes beverages from scalding hot to the perfect temperature, where you can actually appreciate the flavor notes, by the way, in just 20 seconds without watering them down. Learn more at drinkperfection.com. And be sure to check out The Perfector's other application, taking red wine from room temp to wine cellar temperature again in just 20 seconds. Find out more at drinkperfection.com. You mentioned that the whole idea of not even dating. So was that the case with your first marriage? So it was the case for me. The case for me was very different because my parents, like I said, they did um, have their growing pains and grow with us. And so by the time I was in college, my parents were comfortable with the idea of their kids dating, of me dating. So, you know, they knew that that was part of my life now and they were introduced to people that I was dating in college 
And uh, so it was a little bit different. So when I when I introduced them to somebody who I you know wanted to be engaged with, uh, it wasn't out of the blue in my case. Uh, but for a lot of my clients, the, they never did that. A lot of their parents, you know, even well into their late twenties, don't even know that they drink. You know, and and they're you know going to happy hours every. Sure. Friday with their friends. So it just kind of depends on how traditional the family can be. But um, it, I was so nervous introducing my parents to boys or like when that kid from middle school like rides his bike over to your house and wants to, you know, to talk to you. It was like, how do I explain to this kid that I also have a crush on um, that my parents are not going to be okay with this. They're not going to understand it. They're going to almost forbid it. Yeah. And looking back when, and just because I think it's always helpful as we analyze when a marriage breaks down. And the reason I ask you this is because I think it's always helpful for folks who are dating. My next book is going to be about calling off my wedding. I was in this engagement and I wasn't sure. And I was going through those vacillations of like, is this going to, am I going to be able to do this or not? And should I or not? There weren't a lot of resources for that. And I always think that people, once you get engaged or once you're serious relationships, oftentimes what happens is, well, we've been dating a couple of years, so I guess the next step is we get engaged. Is that really the next step? Or is it just because, well, I'm 28 and all my friends are getting married and it's just kind of the next thing to do? Just one guy I've, I've talked to over the years says, well, we were dating like eight years, so I figured she'd earned it. You know, like where there's that next step that really wasn't fully thought through, really. Like looking back, do you go, mm-hmm. wow, there was a red flag here or there, but maybe because, again, maybe the traditional culture, you thought it's time for me to get married, or was there anything in place that you could share with the listeners that might help them if they're going through a relationship where they're not 100% sure if they need to move forward or move um, in a different direction? 100%, yes. So um, when I was dating my ex husband, um, we fought and I, I, I mean, we fought about the things that I consider to be like the crux of the relationship, mm. the stuff that I think needs to be the foundation on which you don't fight about yeah. as much, you know, in order to create that healthy space, um, in a relationship. And we fought about those things. I was young and I was, you know, 27 and all my friends were getting married or mm. in like long-term relationships. And it, that seemed like the age. And a lot of people ask me, like, did my parents force me to get married? And the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, these were those unspoken rules that I thought I had to adhere to. Um, so I was putting a lot of pressure on myself and mm-hmm. there were so many red flags and even times all the way up to the engagement and to walking down the aisle where I was like, um, having doubts, but thinking, well, in the next stage, it'll get easier. Like, look at how much effort my family's put into this wedding or money, or, you know, everybody already knows that we're going down this path. We're already living together. Like all these things are running through my head as like ways to put a bandaid on my doubts. Yeah. Um, so yes, there were those red flags. And what I wish I had known at that time was it would have been a great opportunity for me to open the lines of communication with the mentors and trusted people in my life, including my parents at that time. Mm. Because though, and, and I was too scared to do so. Mm. But had I done it at that, at those red flag times, those gut feeling moments, then um, it would have been a lot a lot easier. And unfortunately, you only know that in hindsight. But for those of you who may be listening to this, you know, when you get that gut feeling, those instincts are, are, are really important to kind of be in tune with and to use them as a way to um, get counsel 
and, you know, hash it out with people who may be able to give you the perspective you need to step outside of your situation and uh, be removed from the pressures. That's so wise. I just did an IGTV about head versus heart. And really, the answer is the gut. <laughs> because yeah. You don't want to be so smart about dating that, well, he's a smart choice, right? And you don't want to just fully follow your heart because your heart can go after the person that's completely wrong for you, but they just you think they're hot. Right? So really, mm-hmm. the gut, and that's, and that's what I came back to with m- calling off my wedding as well. It was the gut just kept saying, this is not for me. And I'm sure you're aware of the research that shows that actually the neurotransmitters that are in our brains are also at work in our gut. So it's one central nervous system. So when we get butterflies in our stomach because we're nervous, or if we get that gut feeling that something's off, we really have to trust it. And I I also want to underscore what you talked about. If you're fighting about, like you said, some of the core foundational aspects of a relationship, it will not get better Please understand mm-hmm. the dating is the, is the the A game. <laughs> the dating mm-hmm. and the honeymoon, the, it, life just gets harder in marriage. And I don't want to say the marriage is hard because really I don't believe right. if you're with the right one, and I'm sure you experience this now and it's night and day from mm-hmm. your first marriage, that when you're with the right person, it's pretty darn easy. Yes, you have challenges. Yes, you have struggles. Yes, life throws curveballs at you. But when you pick someone with whom you are compatible, and that starts with values, and values may not be sexy, (laughs) but values are the foundation. And everything's easier if you share those common values, because then you just have less to fight about. There's just because you're like, oh, yeah, we agree on that. So that's like money in the bank of your relationship. And, and, mm-hmm. and the other thing I love that you spoke to, and it's something, again, I resonate with, when you imagined even in the pit of your stomach, you imagined yourself walking down the aisle and you could say, you could, you could if you were honest with yourself, you're like, oh, I don't, mm. please, mm-hmm. again, just to our listeners who are, you know, a couple of years behind, uh, be- behind us, please listen to that. I remember that same thing. I would imagine myself walking down the aisle in the church saying vows. I'm a Christian saying vows before God in a church. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't think I could say those honestly. And and, yeah. and then I and that was that was one of the most and it was good. So so I guess my my point I'm trying to make here is go ahead and do that hypothetical in your head and then take your pulse, your gut. What is your gut mm-hmm. telling you? Can you say those vows? Can you mean them? Because if you can't yeah. Please don't move forward. And granted, if you do, look, I mean, you're happy and healthy and thriving on the other side. But also, if we can avoid a divorce, we might as well. You know, um, one one of the practices that I often um, introduce to some clients is the noticing of that gut feeling when Mm. it happens in uh, any aspect of your life, small or big, like that feeling of like, oh, did I forget something? No, I have everything. And then a day later on your trip, you're like, oh, the bug spray, right. you know, <laughs> right. right? And so in that moment, your gut was telling you to run inside and maybe look around for something you forgot. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I have that feeling about my keys all the time. So, right. uh, so it, but but becoming more aware of those things in your life will help you when the when the going is really tough. And when you need to be in tune with it, because you'll understand the the physical aspect of what's happening in your body as a way to alert your brain and, and really analyze things a little harder in those moments. That is so important. I'm so glad you brought that up because that really gets back to, and mindfulness is kind of the hot topic people talk about, but it's true. And in this day and age, Versha, don't you think it's even harder because we can be distracted 
at any given moment. We don't even, when you stand in line, years ago, we'd stand in line at the bank, for example, for 10, 15 minutes. We would just have to sit there with our thoughts. We don't anymore. We hop on our phone. We multitask Mm -hmm. like crazy. We never give ourselves a moment to just go, let me take my pulse. Let me take a, 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 a reading of my gut. And so that distractibility can keep us alienated and isolated from our own physiological responses, which are trying to tell us something. Right. Exactly. Uh, and and the only way to do so, unfortunately, nowadays with our phones and all, is to is to practice the mindfulness in whichever way that whatever that means for you. Right. Um, to take the baby steps and to recognize your thoughts and your body and where it is in these situations. And use your body as the tool that it is because it's trying to communicate to you, and you want to to hear and listen and. and and take advantage of that useful information it's trying to give you. Right, right. The other point that you made about walking down the aisle and you know making this commitment before God, I uh, until uh, you know coaching brings out a, a, a spiritual side of me as well. And a lot of people, again, in the South Asian culture, have a lot of community around their religious beliefs. Um, and I remember thinking, well, I made this commitment before God. Like, how can I get a divorce? Right. Um, you know, what does that say about my faith? And then it occurred to me, and I did have help from, you know, sisters who are like friends and counsel to me, uh, to remind myself that my faith is individualistic. And, you know, as a Hindu, um, and perhaps other religions can as- associate with this as well, um, you know, God would never put you through that. You know, God would never want you to suffer, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a little bit of doing what's right for you and for the long term of your life um, that is really important. And so, uh, you know, I, I really, um, you know, it hurts me to, to think about uh, people who have approached me and who, you know, may be out there thinking that um, for religious reasons, and I don't mean to get political or religious about oh, this, yeah. but um, to really think about your religious beliefs in these moments um, and think about how the long term of your life and the betterment of your family, friends, community, work uh, can improve with certain decisions and maybe be stuck in other decisions. Yeah. And I, and I don't know about Hindu religion. I don't know much at all. But I know in Christianity, it's all about forgiveness. And we forgive ourselves for I mean, so often the things we do in life and getting married to the person that wasn't meant to be your husband for the rest of your life, it's, you, you, you did it for good intentions. You didn't do it to be evil. You, you did it because you thought you just really believe I, I, this is what I must do. It's the responsible thing to do. It's the right thing to do. So we have to forgive ourselves for making choices that seemed just what we were supposed to do at the time. And then realizing later we, no, it, it wasn't the right choice for me. And there has to be forgiveness around that, I believe. You're speaking my language. It's wonderful. <laughs> oh, great. I know. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I was just going to, as we as we wind down here, I was just going to ask you, is there anything else you'd like to share about this topic or anything else you'd like to leave listeners? Or do you want to share a little bit about your services and what you offer or where they can find you? All of that. Yeah, thank you. Um you know, the idea behind um, uprooting social stigmas to live a life that serves your dreams is what my coaching is all about. Uh, I really feel like there are tools and ideas and philosophies behind um, living a life free from that judgment and shame. Mm. And it is 
something that I've utilized in my own life and has um, just created a lot of abundance and happiness and love. And so that is what my coaching is about. You can find me at um, coachingbyversha.com, coachingbyversha on Instagram. And of course, I offer uh, 30-minute you know, free introductory calls there to learn more about coaching and also a free 90-minute call, which is a deep dive into things like fears and survival mechanisms and instead coming from a place that is um, of your essence. And that's a really powerful discovery call for those who are um, a little more interested in, in understanding what coaching is all about. I, I really appreciate your time. And, and I know that we've spoken a bit about a particular community to an extent, but I really believe that the themes and, and the the messages that we've been discussing here and that you are bringing to the forefront by virtue of your platform, I think they really generalize to a lot of us. Like I said, I was resonating with so much of what you were saying and, and going back to the family system stuff. And so I'm really thankful because I know that listeners will find, even if they're not part of this particular community of which you speak, they will find something that's going to be empowering for them in their dating relationship, marriage realm, and, and even into other domains as well. So Versha, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed this so much. The love and life hack for this week is, in the words of DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, for some of you who are in your 20s and 30s, that was Will Smith in the day. Parents just don't understand. <laughs> At least that's how it feels. And sometimes we continue to feel this, even into our 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond. But as Versha's story shows us, sometimes we don't give them enough credit. And they're ready to see things from our perspective. Thanks for joining us today. And a special thank you to all who subscribe to the podcast and review episodes. I truly appreciate it. Also, Love and Life Insiders, be sure to check your inbox because I just sent out two Bonus for My Besties podcast episodes. One was part two of my interview with Dr. Stephen C. Hayes, creator of ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. He shares the six pivots of ACT in a way that feels almost like a guided meditation. I'd recommend you find a quiet room light a candle, and enjoy an hour of clarification, contemplation, and emotional healing. The other bonus episode is a Girl Talk Gets Deep Q&A. I answer the following questions that you guys sent me. One, can a strong, independent woman attract a strong, independent man, or will her masculine energy scare him off? Two, should we take back cheating husbands? And three, how do we make peace with potentially never being biological mothers? So if you're interested in those episodes, join the Love and Life fam by subscribing to my newsletter. And feel free to leave a question for me. Details are on my homepage at loveandlifemedia.com. Take charge of your thoughts Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson April. Until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson April. <laughs>